that be true in all of our hearts this morning, no matter what condition we find ourselves here this morning, whether we're in here this morning with a time of abundance and rejoice, or if we're here this morning and we really taste the struggle to recognize that His goodness is always, always there for us. He's such a gift of encouragement. Good morning. I'm so thankful that you're here today. My name is Pastor Simon, one of the pastors that gets to serve you here at this great church, Hinsdale Covenant, and we have a word to begin this morning. It's Colossians chapter 1. Um, you're going to look at 11 through 14, which is going to sound like a final blessing, and in a sense it is, and we're going to come back to it at the end of this, this teaching. If you have your Bibles with you, great. You can open them up to Colossians chapter 1. It's such a great word. I love Colossians. It's such a great compression of the whole story of Christ and the hope that we have in him. Uh, and this is just a small snippet of the encouragement that we, we get from him. So this is Colossians chapter 1, uh, verses 11 through 14. And I'll put it on the screen for you if you don't have it in your lap. This is Paul writing to the churches, including us, saying, May you be made strong with all the power, all the strength that comes from his glorious power. And may you be prepared to endure everything with patience while joyfully giving thanks to the Father who has enabled you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the light. He has rescued us from the power of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption forgiveness of sins. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, God. If you're able to key in on some of those key words, it's, you know, be strong and in and, and his strength, his power to endure with patience and even to be joyful in gratitude with thanksgiving to the Father who has given us a hope and inheritance that is to come, something that is due to the saints that are in the light. He's transferred us out of darkness into light. It's such a hopeful passage, but it recognizes that the conditions that it's blessed over may not always be hopeful. And it's saying you can endure. You can endure not in your strength, but by soaking yourself in God's endless, endless power. What a great, great passage that is as we begin our series and we continue talking about deep questions of faith. Our series is called Wonder. And we have been exploring these deep, deep questions of faith and life. And these emerged not only from my own research, but really sometimes my own story. For those of you that know me, know that I did not spend still much of, more than half of my life as a non-believer. Didn't think it was incredible at all. Uh, wouldn't have found me in church ever as a young adult. And then God changed my life. But it was questions like these that, that really stirred me. And um, ultimately, I love exploring them even more still. There's so much more to plumb. And, you know, we've been going over this list about the relation between science and God and the relevancy of Scripture in today's modern culture. We talked about the difference between morality and righteousness, which is found in God and for God. And then last week, Lars led us to this idea that can we say we love God and not the church? And he brilliantly said, yes, but you can't stay there. Today, we talk about the big question, the big question about pain and suffering. And I say it's a big question because it's often one that gets cited as the reason that people struggle, even those who maybe say they have faith or believe in a God or believe that there is God, this is a struggler because like, what do we do with pain and suffering? How can there be, is how, usually how it's phrased, a God who is good while there is so much pain and suffering and junk 
in the world? It's the question that often you might hear in conversation. It's a question that may come to your own heart. It's a question that can echo into our minds when we consider all the pain and struggle, not only in the world, but even in our own hearts for those of us that are going through or have been through or continuing or, or fearing of hard time. How can God still be good when we're just saturated so often with pain and suffering? You know, I was really struggling this week with you know, even just the news. I love watching the news, and you know, but it's been hard. Like we've got balloons floating over, over the top of us. We don't know what they're doing. The doomsday clock financially has clicked even closer to that dark hour. So many different afflictions and things and worry. How can there be a God who's good? Meanwhile, there's all of this pain and suffering. It's usually a question that seems to put God on trial. How? Can you justify a God, a belief in God who's good and sovereign when there's so much pain and suffering? Now, before I, I get into this, I always have to remember that it is not a philosophical question. It can be. It can be one that I remember tossing around too in you know, coffee shop, maybe a bar, like you know, teasing people who are Christians. How can you have a God there, right? And, but I was joking. I was making fun of it all. But pain and suffering is not a joke. Pain and suffering is real, and you can't deal with it philosophically without recognizing first that pain and suffering are real, and I want to be respectful of that because I certainly have pain in my life, and I certainly have suffering in my heart, and I'm guaranteeing that there are some of you who are here, no matter how comfortable the rest of your life is, you are right now experiencing some pain and perhaps even some suffering. And there's no real philosophical answer we're going to give that's going to give healing and satisfying to that. So I want to make sure we understand that first. What is the difference between pain and suffering anyway? I mean, pain often comes sort of unexpected. It's stuff that hurts. It can come in the form of relationships or physical ache or maybe some conditions of, of work or conditions in your life that just are unexpected and they hurt. And, there are, and, and we have to deal with that pain. Now, suffering is usually another level of pain that's prolonged. Suffering might be something that feels deeper than painful, like we hurt, but it's at a much deeper foundational level. We're rocked by it. And, it, and we, can, we, can, um, we can feel or experience suffering in our own lives, in our own local lives, but then we could also observe suffering in the world and kind of grieve on that level. So they're related, pain and suffering, but there is kind of a difference between them. We can experience pain and suffering in our hearts. We can experience pain and suffering in our minds, in our emotions. We can experience pain and suffering in our homes. We can experience pain and suffering in our families, in our friendships, in our community. We can experience pain and suffering in our world, in our nation, and it's real. So the question is, what do we do with that? Now, now, typically, if you actually rephrase that question, it actually begins by putting pain and suffering as the subject and then makes God kind of the object of that. Like it basically is this. If there is so much pain, and that's, we can observe that. We see it. Often we can see nothing but that when we're really in it deep. There's so much pain and suffering. How then can there be a God? In other words, how does that secondary condition of God match my experience of pain and suffering. And this, again, this is thinking of it philosophically because pain and suffering is so real, so present in our lives, it's almost like trying to imagine the sun is out there when those, we go through those months. I'm so thankful for the sun today, aren't you? Because didn't it feel like it just wasn't out there anymore? 
it gets so cloudy for so long and it's so gray and so dark that you're like, is the sun even alive at all out there still? And it can be like that with pain and suffering. You're like, is, is there God still out there? Because all I see is gray and dark and yuck. This is how we approach the question philosophically. And again, puts God on trial. But there's another way to see this question. Theologically, theologically, which first of all would understand there's got to be the existence of God that's over and above that gray and that dark, over and above my local pain and suffering, even over and above the pain and suffering that we might resonate with in the world. Those great, great trials, those great pains, those great sufferings. Over and above that is a God who is greater than those things. That's how we have to imagine this, first of all, theologically speaking. Before we can get to the pain and suffering, we have to recognize there is a God who is sovereign and good. And is, he's higher than our local experience of pain and suffering. It's what Isaiah the prophet was saying back in chapter 55 of his, his book, Isaiah, when he said, you know, there's, there is God out there who's, whose ways are higher than our ways and whose thoughts are higher than our thoughts. See, theologically, we have to stretch ourselves, first of all, to go, okay, if we begin with the idea that there is a God out there who is sovereign and is good, then the next step is yet we recognize there is pain and suffering. What do we do with that? God is up and above. He's there. He's sovereign. He's good. And yet there is pain and suffering. And how do we work through that? Before we get to that point, I just want to say humanistically, we really don't have any reason to expect that there wouldn't be pain and suffering. If we take God out of the equation for a moment, humanistically speaking, we should have no expectation that of a pain-free life. That actually didn't even exist. That concept would have existed prior to kind of our more modern sensibility where we built ourselves up to such greatness that we think, well, maybe we should get rid of all pain and suffering. Before that, throughout most of human history, certainly the ancient world, pain and suffering was just it. People were just trying to survive and barely get by at any point of time in history. You see this reflected in the harshness of the Old Testament, which some of you may have struggled with, where you read the Old Testament, you're like, gosh, there's a lot of bloodshed and warfare in there that God also seems to be a part of, but there are these factions. That was perfectly normal in the ancient world as cultures against cultures and clans against clans and people against people and massive amounts of bloodshed and sickness and famine and disease and hardship. And yet, according to the scriptures, again, as a, as a historical book, God still reigned. But outside of that, I'm saying in, throughout human history, throughout most of human history, it has been mostly about pain and suffering and conflict and warfare and famine and disease and oppression and slavery and butchery and cruelty. For, for most of human existence, there was no expectation at all that we could have a life that would be void of any kind of pain or misery. It was just how it was. Which is why, throughout most of human history, the ancient people expected pain and suffering, and they would often look to kind of their local gods or gods that represented different facets of their life and substance, and would beg favor from those gods and often offer cruel sacrifices of, of people and other resources to help those gods earn some favor over their pitiful and miserable and short lives. Now, it's fascinating that during this great time of kind of ancient chaos and suffering and expectation of just, you know, sadness and death, that God spoke to his covenant people. This is recorded in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. God spoke to his covenant people 
whom he was building a contract with in order to bring about goodness in the world. And he said, hear, O Israel, people of God, hear, O Israel, the Lord, the Lord your God, is one. The Lord is one. There's not multiple gods you have to beg favor from or sacrifice to. The Lord your God is one. And what do we, what do, we do? You should love the Lord your God. Love him. He wants to enter into a relationship with his people, a relationship built on love, not on begging. Fascinating and groundbreaking, radical, you could call it. There's one God, not multiple gods, and he's good and he loves and he loves his people and he's worthy of praise and love back. So then we go on in human history and there's a God we see in scripture who is, who is sovereign, he's good. And he's present with his people. And what does he do with their pain and suffering? As he begins to enter into their pain and their suffering. Now, a great place to look at where God enters into human suffering is at that very fulcrum of human history, which would be the first century, often called the beginning of the common era or before Christ. That first century that Jesus entered into is a great place for us to look at how God enters into human history and starts to deal with pain and suffering in the world. And I'm grateful for a book, really, really awesome book called Unimaginable by Jeremiah Johnston. It was one of those like, hey, what if kind of stories. Maybe you've seen those like where they're historical rewrites based on like, hey, what if something else happened in history? What would it have been like? And this book, Jeremiah Johnston, Unimaginable, he imagines what the world would look like if there was no Christianity. And it's really well researched and really, really good, easy read. And he, began, he, he gave me a great detail of what the conditions were like in the first century that Jesus entered into. And it was really a time of sickness and suffering and pain. Again, just like normal, because that's how life was. It was hard for ancient people. They didn't expect a good life. They didn't expect perfection. There was always suffering and sickness and pain in their lives. There was the threat of death from a variety of causes at any point. Estimates show that even in the developed world, the Roman, uh, Roman kingdom... About 25% of the people at any point in the Roman kingdom were sick or ill or injured or in some need of medical care that was insufficient to help them. Which is why you get stories in the gospel like the woman who was bleeding out for 12 years, could not stop bleeding, and it said she had exhausted all of her resources on medical care that, that helped her none. Finally, she reached out to the hem of Jesus' garment where God enters in and she was healed. This is why... In the Gospels, there's so many people running around Jesus asking and begging for healing because he seemed to have special ability to enter into that pain and that brokenness and bring healing and bring relief. This is why you see him interacting with blind people and beggars and lame. You're like, boy, there seemed to be a lot of blind people, beggars and lame. Yeah, there were, a lot. And they were all crowding around Jesus because finally there was some hope. Finally there was some hope. Roughly one-third of, of, the, of the people who lived in that day would reach adulthood. One-third of them would reach adulthood. If you made it to your 40th birthday, wow, way to go. You've really done something. Those of you who are older than 40, man, that's really great. Rarely, rarely would somebody live into their 70s, 80s, extremely rare. But yet you have a couple of cases in Scripture. There was Simeon. And uh, Anna, who was hanging out at the temple all the time, praising God, she was reported to be in her 80s. Wow, she made it to her 80s. That was extraordinary. And she did it because she had hope in something greater than her. This is why there's probably not a flinch 
in the Gospels that uh, Joseph, who was Jesus' dad, caretaker, died at some point. Probably got to 40 or maybe just before that. Who knows? That's why I don't make a big deal about it. Probably <laughs> most of the guys didn't really make it much past 40. Sorry. The infant mortality rate was incredibly high, not only in the, in the developed area, but also among the poor. And by the way, if you had a baby and there was something wrong with it, it, it didn't likely live very much. And they were very, very callous towards babies that had any kind of deformities. This is why, though, parents were always so desperate for healing. And many times through the Gospels, you have people running, parents running up to Jesus saying, please help my child. They're sick or they're dying or they're dead. And he would enter into that pain and bring relief. There was rampant malnutrition and sickness. A lot of people would get tooth infection and, and get really sick or die from that. Hug your dentist. You don't realize how much they're helping you. Rampant malnutrition. People would never eat. They were just chronically hungry. And then Jesus entered into that hunger and fed 5,000 of them a couple of times to the point where they were full. Wow, we're full. Haven't had that feeling. That's how God enters in. There was fear and oppression. Roman overlords were always there. They were quick to punish, quick to stab, quick to crucify. Jesus entered into that and said, look, just give to Caesar what is his due. Meanwhile, there's a higher kingdom that we're connected to and that you belong to by faith. There was great concern over evil spirits, wicked spirits, possession, uh, superstition. That's a you know, big theme in, in the Gospels and even in the book of Acts, which is why Jesus entered in and was casting out all those weird, unclean, wicked spirits. There was inequality like crazy among the races, even among people who were in the same people group. Like there were certain types of Jews that hated each other and certain type of Gentiles that all hated. It was a very racist time. And they kind of half lived among each other, but always in clans and, and always suspicious of each other. And Jesus entered into that too and started something that was multi, multicultural, multiracial. Forget about being a woman. You were largely a possession or property or a prostitute. And Jesus spoke dignity over all women, including those who had been abused. And there was a massive gap between the rich and the poor, a massive gap that Jesus also, as God, entered into and bridged so well. So throughout this first century, we have this sense of a God who is sovereign and good and all this pain and suffering. And what does God do is he enters into it he enters into it. And Jesus said something that was really profound. He talked about it pretty often. He would tell people to repent, turn in your ways, and look because the kingdom of heaven is now come near. The kingdom of heaven is now drawn near. And something began in that common era with that good news of Jesus and his ministry and certainly his death and his resurrection. Something started there that is still holding value today, that's still bearing fruit today, this kingdom of God that has come is still bearing fruit. And if you were with us the last couple weeks, I talked about this, that much of what we love about our modern culture emerges from Christian biblical values. This is how the kingdom of God has drawn near and continued to manifest. Just as we prayed a little while ago, Lord, may your kingdom come and your will be done here on earth now as it is in heaven. The kingdom of heaven is being sown, and it's through biblical values that we have a much better quality of life than we've ever had. We have improved ethics and dignity as we recognize people that are all made in his image, regardless of, of have they repented yet. There's great advances in medical care and life expectancy 
that have largely been inspired by the church that long ago was mostly in, in charge of hospitalization and, and, and uh, medical and science advancement. There's increased concern and care for equity and equality and justice. I know we still have work to do. We do. But that was inspired and continues to be nurtured by the flame of the Holy Spirit through the kingdom of God being sown. This is why there's more care for widows and orphans and even those who are captive or imprisoned. We have a greater attention now to benevolence, to care of the poor. That I love what Lars shared last week as the body of Christ. We still have responsibility to do more, to sow more kingdom. There's still more work to be done. There's still more prayer to be done. There's still more action that can take place so that we can keep making things better and better and maybe have a little less suffering, maybe a little less pain in the world. But you ever notice that it's never enough? You ever notice that it's never enough? I don't know how. Somehow we were born in this era when there seems to be a lot less pain and suffering than it was in the ancient world. Anyone else ever thank God you were born at this time? We got warm homes with natural, like fresh heat that's mostly reliable. We have fresh clothes. We have good food. We have donut holes. Like, wow, so good. We have hospitals within reach. I mean, there's hospitals all over the place here with, with top-notch doctors that will help us when we have our time of need. And, and we have so much great care and prosperity, especially in this area, right? But it never seems to be enough. There's always an ache for more. It never feels like we're quite there. In fact, while maybe one-third of us isn't sick anymore, one-quarter of us isn't sick chronically anymore, there's probably at least that percentage that is struggling right now with anxiety, depression, or some form of mental illness. We're hurting still. But yet there's this perfection vision that we have in our hearts that we can't escape. Why is there still pain and suffering? Why would we expect less? It's as if we have this vision for perfection that's baked into the human soul that regardless of faith, we can't escape. We need it. We long for it. And then we ask, how can there be a God who's good if there's pain and suffering? But again, if we begin with a God who is present, if we begin with a God who is sovereign and good and recognize, yeah, there still is pain and suffering, what has he done about it? He's entered in. And this is unique to the Christian story of faith and any other faith expression, any other religious expression anywhere in the world. Only in the Christian story does God himself not just stand up and above and kind of go, well, sorry for you. Worship me a little bit more. Maybe I'll give you some favor. Only in the Christian story does God himself enter into that pain and that brokenness. And he does so in the person of Jesus Christ. And by his wounds, we are healed. And he draws near to those who are brokenhearted. And he blesses those who mourn. And he says to you who are overburdened, come to me and take on my burden. It'll, it'll feel light. It will be light to you. He takes on all of our pain. He takes on all of our shame. He takes on all the sickness. All, even death itself is defeated because of what Jesus did entering into pain and suffering. So in our homes, in our families, in our hearts and minds, in our community, Jesus enters in and he suffers with us. And on the cross, he suffers for us. And by his suffering, we are healed. 
And we have hope for something greater, which is baked in the human mind and baked in the human heart. So what do we do with that good news? What do we do with a God who <coughs> enters in? Well, the answer was there in the text where it says to us, be strong with all the strength that comes from his glorious power and be prepared to endure everything with patience while joyfully giving thanks even to the Father because he's enabled you, promised you to share an inheritance of the saints that are in the light. And we remember that he's rescued us, rescued us from the power of darkness, transferred us in the kingdom of his beloved son who's purchased our hearts in his blood, that's the redemption, and has forgiven us our sins. We have a God who is good. We have a God who is sovereign. Yet we have pain and suffering, but he enters into it and calls us to faith. Some resources for you if you want to continue before we get to the table today. The Veritas Forum on YouTube. You got about eight and a half minutes. There are really great videos there from Tim Keller and N.T. Wright who dig deep into this idea of pain and suffering and a God who is still sovereign and good. This podcast, Apollos Watered, has been going on for a while, but just this week dropped an episode called Deep Conversations with Mark Talbot. He is a philosophy professor at Wheaton College. Hey, Wheaton College. And uh, he's so wise, but he's also hurt, and he's been through it, and he's still going through it, and he shares practically how we can understand that. And his story is amazing, how he's actually drawn and grown closer to the Lord despite great suffering in his own life and in his research. And then, of course, there's that book, Unimaginable. It's a really fascinating read, pretty easy to get through. What our world would look like if we did not have Christianity in it, Jeremiah Johnson. Uh, I would love to have coffee with anyone who picks up that book and reads it. I'd love to have some discussions with you about that. But as we turn our hearts now to the table, we enter into what is known in the liturgy as the great mystery of faith. And maybe you've heard this, that Christ has died. Christ has died. He entered into our story of pain and suffering, and he took it upon himself and he died. Christ is risen. Death itself is defeated. He's there at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us, joining us in our pain and suffering, and Christ will come again. That feeling we have, that urge we have to have everything complete and everything perfect, that's not a lie. He's given us that because that's what he's promised us. He will come back, and he will wipe every tear away, and pain and suffering will be no more, and it will be glorious. With that in our hearts, we turn to the table.